today's verse is from Revelation 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, there was and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for um, for this season of waiting. Thank you for, for coming to be with us and making all things new. And thank you that um, even as this season is different and scary and all the things. I just pray that we would feel your presence, um, and that we would feel your, the peace that only you can give. Um, in your name we pray. Amen. Hey friends, today we're talking about the renewal of all things. And as we talk about renewal, I just want to thank you all for continuing to give so generously to our church this year through all the coronavirus craziness. Uh, because of your gifts, uh, you're funding our renewal efforts in Tulsa and around the world. So whether it's frontline medical workers or if it's uh, pastors in persecuted Middle Eastern countries and all kinds of ways your giving has funded our generosity as a church. And so as the year comes to a close, I just want to acknowledge that and say thank you and invite you to continue to give as we close out this year and we have more opportunities to bless uh, the city and bless the world in Jesus' name as a church. Uh, this week on Instagram, I was amazed to see uh, a ton of very, very different Advent kind of calendars popping up on my feed. So uh, just this week, I saw a gourmet cheese Advent calendar. I saw a Keurig Advent calendar, a fine wine Advent calendar, an herbal tea Advent calendar, a chocolate Advent calendar. And as I saw all of these popping up on my feed, my first thought was, man, I really want to do all of those. And my second thought was, holy cow, you know, the market has found a way to monetize religion in all kinds of new ways. And the Christian season of Advent is not merely a countdown to Christmas or a way to, you know, up the hype or boost sales. Advent was originally intended to be the season of repentance and refocusing in anticipation of the celebration of Christmas and as a way of, like, kicking off the Christian year. In the season of Advent, we imaginatively consider what it would have been like to be on the front side of Christ's first coming, and we also pray for and long for the hastening of, of Christ's second coming, His return. And this was the conversation we had last week about those two prayers, the first a really common prayer in the Bible, how long, Lord, and taking the angst of that impatience to the last prayer of the Bible, which is even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, in Tulsa, there is just a ton of confusion and lack of biblical knowledge about all that Christ's second coming will entail. And there's some people who are listening, who are watching today, who have been overexposed to this topic through TV preachers with these giant charts 
who treat the Bible like the Da Vinci Code and in- introduce all kinds of bizarre symbology and treat the original languages in ways that no one who actually knows those languages would find responsible. And these people who detail every single event that supposedly is going to happen, and of course, President Obama is said to have been the Antichrist, and people are just overwhelmed and like, okay, there's too much confusion and weirdness around this topic that like, I just don't want anything to do with it. People take on a kind of like agnostic posture toward eschatology, toward end times kind of things, the the second coming of Christ, and they just like… They just give up on the topic. It has been too tainted and soured by weird preachers. They say, I'm just going to focus on the here and now. And consequently, those people lack a clear vision of Christian hope, which is really unfortunate. These are the people who have been overexposed to the topic. But there's also this other group who has been under, sadly underexposed to the topic of the second coming of Christ and have a, a pitifully unimaginative vision of what it will be like when Jesus returns as He promised. Now, if you were to press them on, like, what is Christian hope, they might tell you something like, well, we're all going to go to heaven when we die. And some may feel embarrassed to admit, I'm not, that the concept of a never-ending church service in the clouds doesn't actually sound all that exciting and interesting. And this, too, is unfortunate, the underexposure to this topic. I really appreciate how the scholar N.T. Wright has said appropriately that when it comes to matters of the future… The Bible doesn't give us highly detailed flow charts and timelines as some TV preachers bring to the table. Instead, N.T. Wright says, we're given signposts pointing into the fog. So, he admits with truth and humility, like, there is much that we don't know exactly how everything is going to work out. There are limitations to our ability to explain and forecast everything. And for that reason, I think it's appropriate to be weary or to be cautious or skeptical of people who claim to know what Jesus said is not ours to know, the times and the places and exactly how things are going to go down. On the other hand, there's signposts pointing in the fog. We do have signposts. There is a lot that we can say that we know quite confidently. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today and in the coming weeks, the the substance of Christian hope, what will happen when Christ returns. Now, the Bible actually speaks fairly clearly on this topic uh, in ways that once you see it, you're going to think, how did I miss this? How did I never understand this? And you may even get irritated with sermons and pastors you've heard from in the past because you're like, "I I totally missed it. If you really want to explore this topic, I would urge you to pick up the book Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, which, is just going to, which was life-changing for Emily and for me. Several friends right now are reading it, and I would urge you to do the same. As we consider the text that we've just read, I want to ask you to think of a place uh, a, a place that you associate with really warm memories, a place that you really love. It's a place that when you go there, like your mind and your heart are just flooded with, with good feelings, with a sense of safety and joy and comfort. 
One of those places for me is New Life Ranch. Uh, I worked there as a college student 16, 17 years ago, and uh, would go back as often as I could, especially in those early years. I would ride there with my friend Justin, and every time Justin and I would pull onto New Life Ranch Road, we would turn on the song Faith Like a Child by Jars of Clay, and it just gave me butterflies in my heart, thinking about driving down that road with Justin, hitting the curve that like really gives you butterflies. We'd go down the hill and turn left into New Life Ranch, On the right, there's Flint Creek, and you go over the speed bump, and I just pull into this place where I have so many formative memories, Uh, moments of just like finding new friends and, and finding a sense of fit that was really important to me, moments that were spiritually profound, you know, buying a study Bible for the first time at age 18 and going up to the outdoor chapel in the early mornings. And uh, I led worship there for a couple of summers and so many memories of being in that chapel and hearing people sing. There's just this sweet feeling in my heart associated with that place. I want you to think about what's one of those places for you, a place that just your heart is glad when you think of it. Now I want to ask you about a place that maybe makes you a little bit uncomfortable to think of. It pains you to think of. And in fact, like in thinking about that place, you would recognize you avoid that part of town or you won't go back to that neighborhood because you associate with that place uh, negative feelings and you don't like how it feels to think about that place. My mind goes to, uh, you can picture this too, intersections or roadsides where there are always flowers or there's a picture that's fading and you know somebody's loved one died there. Or maybe you would think of a place where you were rejected or people said unkind things to you or of you. Maybe you would think of a place where you experienced uh, trauma or grief. It's kind of funny that I know this because I don't listen to country music. But uh, Carrie Underwood has this song called Blown Away, and she has a lyric in the song that captures how specific places can take on baggage and grief and a sense of woundedness. The song says, there's not enough rain in Oklahoma to wash the sins out of that house. There's not enough wind in Oklahoma to rip the nails out of the past. As painful as it can be to think about or to, uh, to visit places where we experienced hurt or loss or rejection, it seems to be the case that avoiding that place, literally or emotionally, avoiding that wound forever, actually bars us from healing. One psychologist who specializes in trauma talks about the U-curve that's associated with healing. It makes the case that in order to begin the road to healing, a person actually needs to walk through what happened. They need to go down to the bottom of the U and do this in the presence of uh, someone who is safe and trusted. And just as vividly as possible, mentally and conversationally walk through what happened. See and name and acknowledge the hurt. And there's something really powerful, and especially in the presence of a safe and trusted person, there's something about revisiting in the presence of that trusted person, going to the bottom of the U, revisiting the hurts that can actually free us to go on the other side, the upside of the U. 
that going back into the hurt with trusted people can, can bring us to this place of greater freedom and healing. Therefore, the longer we avoid mentally or literally those places of hurt and woundedness, the longer we may permit them to have mastery over us. I think this in part is why the idea of merely going to heaven when we die is not altogether that emotionally satisfying. I want you to just like picture as if from, you know, from uh, the, the International Space Station or something, picture planet Earth and all the hurt and anger and war and violence and havoc that have been unleashed on this planet. And then in the end, imagine us like zooming away to another dimension to go to heaven never to return. Now, there's a sense in which all of that hurt and death and destruction, having been abandoned and left back on earth, exists in perpetuity. Having never been dealt with, it's just always there. And the idea of flying away to heaven keeps us from being given the chance to go to the bottom of the U and begin to heal. But you know what, for many people, is going to be really surprising? Is that here at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21 and 22, we don't go flying off to heaven. But that in the end, heaven comes to us. This is what we read in Revelation 21. In John's vision, he said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We're given here this vision of renewal, a renewed earth and renewed heaven. Creation is, is healed. It's made new again. The next verse says, perhaps curiously to many, it says, And there was no longer any sea. The sea in the imagination of those who lived in the ancient Near East represented chaos and evil. And in John's apocalyptic vision of creation renewed, the creation is made new again in the absence of chaos and evil. John continues in his vision. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. In the age to come, where will be God's dwelling place? Among the people. In the end, we don't go flying off to heaven, but heaven comes flying down to us. The veil is lifted and heaven and earth are joined we actually don't abandon the earth, but the earth we know is changed and renewed and restored. You see, the reason that places take on meaning for us, both positively and negatively, is that God is the one who invented the concept of place. God invented time and space. God invented the earth. This is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for He founded it. He established it. And in the same way that our physical bodies absorb stress and trauma, you can read about this in books like The Body Keeps the Score, physical places do as well. Do you remember God telling Cain in, in the book of Genesis, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. 
the ground, the earth, the soil had the memory of trauma in it. You could walk through the Holocaust Museum in Israel or go to a former concentration camp in Poland, go to a brothel in Bangladesh or visit the killing fields in Cambodia. Drive by the house where you remember hearing your parents fight or or see the place where you were humiliated as a teenager. These physical places take on meaning and a kind of representative power. And for us to experience ultimate healing or liberation, these places themselves and everything that we associate with them need to experience renewal at the hand of God. And as we consider John's revelation in Revelation 21 and 22, we find that this is exactly what Jesus promises to do and pledges to do when He returns, to renew creation and to renew physical spaces themselves. Do you remember in Genesis at the very, very beginning of the Bible how at the center of the garden there was the tree of life? It's the tree that gave man like everlasting eternal life. And after Adam and Eve sinned, they were barred from access to the tree of life. If we were to continue reading in Revelation this vision of what will happen in the, day, in the age to come, we find that the tree of life is back and it plays this breathtaking role. This is uh, Revelation 22, 1 and 2. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. This is the new Jerusalem come to earth. It says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And then hear these words. It says, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Those are some of my favorite words in the Bible. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, just go on this imaginative journey with me and ask, what what is that going to be like? When Christ returns and the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven, beautifully dressed as a bride, and creation is renewed, the whole paradigm shifts, are we going to run up to the tree of life and snatch a handful of leaves and then go back to that physical place of woundedness? Are we going to like rub some leaves on it to make it all better? And you may feel like I'm teasing or being silly, but actually like I'm just positively allowing my imagination to run wild. What does it mean? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, this is John and not the Lord talking in this case, but it almost gives me the impression that when Christ returns, it's not like everything is shifted instantaneously, but almost as if there's going to be work for us to do. And and what a gift in God's wisdom and vision not to abandon the world that's been stained by sin, but to actually incorporate the stainers, the people, humanity who has so messed it up to be included in its healing. Could that be part of life in the age to come, joining God in the healing of the nations? I love the title of a book by Howard Snyder, which simply says, Salvation Means Creation Healed. I think that so begins to get at what the Bible presents to us as Christian hope, that when Christ returns, the earth The cosmos, everything that's in it will be made new. It will be made new in the absence of sin and decay and chaos. 
God will remake what He has made, but we have so soiled and destroyed, and this is central to Christian hope, the actual renewal of all things when Christ returns, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What do we do, though, as we wait for this day to come? Two words, very simple is we enact and we anticipate. First, we enact our hope. In view of what's to come, we labor for it now. To enact this future reality is to work to be a restorer, a renewer uh, in the here and now. And so we begin to ask, where are there signs of, of brokenness and death and decay and injustice? And how can we, who bear the hope of all that we'll do, all that God will do when Christ returns, what can we do to labor for healing and restoration and renewal now? How can we begin to do this to be like a signpost of hope in the present in our families or in our neighborhoods or in our city, in our state, in our world? And though our efforts may be like a drop in a bucket, we still labor to enact hope in, in ways that are small and big, confident for the ultimate renewal and restoration that is to come. First, we enact. But second, we anticipate. We look forward to the renewal that is to come. Man, if you don't know where this story is leading, it is so easy to give in to despair. If you've just chosen to be somewhat agnostic about eschatology, about how this whole story is going to reach its consummation, it is so easy to be overwhelmed with grief and anxiety about the state of our world. But we're encouraged by the authors of the New Testament to remind ourselves of what's to come to anchor us in hope. And so we anticipate, we let our heart and imagination just run wild thinking about what it will be like when Christ returns. How will we feel when we see Him? We dream about it. We pray for it. We long for it. We imagine it, and we wait for it. We set our hope on Christ. We lament to Christ. We co-labor with Christ, and we just look forward to what it's going to be like. Do we look forward to what He's going to do? And in view of His past faithfulness and His present faithfulness and His future faithfulness, we just refuse to despair. And when tragedy strikes or when trauma haunts, we remind ourselves of what we hope for, the renewal of all things. Uh, I was on lockdown and isolation like tons of you have been with COVID uh, for, for two weeks, and it was not fun. Thanks uh, to God, like I had minimal symptoms. I still can't smell or taste anything to save my life, but I had a lot of time on my hands, and while I was in my bedroom on lockdown, I discovered this whole genre of videos on YouTube that are all about uh, restoration. Have you seen these? They're, they're really, really great. And people will take an old car that's been sitting in a field getting rained on for 50 years, or they'll take a, a, like a knife that they inherited from their great-great-grandfather, or a clock, or an original Game Boy. And there are these people who will make videos of themselves taking these things apart piece by piece and meticulously cleaning every square inch. 
And you can see them gently and patiently scrubbing off rust and dirt and wear from the years and smoothing and sanding and repainting and restoring and putting back all the pieces and making sure all the mechanical flow works. And in the end, you see this total transformation at the hands of an expert craftsman. This thing that you would see and like give up on, like, oh, that is just a piece of junk. We better buy it new. It was actually restored by someone who knew what they were doing. Well, even so, Christ will return to restore and renew all things just as He's promised to not only restore and, and renew all things, but also all physical places. And you may have heard this concept before, the renewal of all things, God remaking the heavens and the earth. But to make it especially powerful and applicable for you, what I want you to do is particularize that hope in, in your setting. You might want to begin by thinking about like a family member who, is, who has struggled so long with, with an illness or a sickness or a condition. You may think about a physical place where you experience trauma or where people even now are being hurt. Think about uh, countries all around the world that, are, that have been in perpetual violence for decades or, or even centuries. But name those physical places, name those topics that represent tragedy or hurt or fear or insecurity for you. And as part of your Advent prayer life, invite the Lord Jesus to come and to join you into your scary feelings and your thinking about that place. Pray, come, Lord Jesus, would you join me in my thinking about that house or that topic and remind your heart of hearts as you stand next to this tragedy and maybe your heart is elevated and you're sweating a bit, remind yourself in your heart of hearts that this too will be made right. That there ultimately will be a profound sense of final justice and renewal and restoration and healing, not just in the abstract, not just for other people, but in the particular ways in which we've experienced the world at its worst. The Lord Jesus, our healer, will come to renew and restore all things, and maybe, just maybe, we'll be joining Him in the work the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. In this time where tons of folks are discouraged and disheartened and worried and the world seems to be uh, making us all just feel a little bit scared, a little bit nervous to be a person, I want you to be anchored in the moment uh, with Christian hope that this, the, the world is not, on, is not on a road to destruction and we shouldn't accept that as a foregone conclusion. Instead, in view of the renewal that is to come, we can actually labor in the present to be restorers, enacting as like a protest against how terrible things are, enacting with hope in our own small ways, uh, little acts of restoration, anticipating and reminding our hearts of what's to come when Christ returns as He promised. We'll experience the renewal of all things and the renewal of all places. Would you pray with me? I even wonder right now, for those of you who have top of mind a, a place where there's injustice or brokenness or decay, maybe you would just pray, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, and renew that home. Or you'd pray, come, Lord Jesus, 
and, and establish justice in this situation or in this nation. Think about places that have been, you know, ravaged by war like Syria and Libya, Sudan. Come, Lord Jesus, and establish your reign. Renew these broken places so that people might know that there's a God. Even as you name those places, I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd anchor our hearts in hope. That you'd help us not to give in to despair or a sense of fatalism. Help us to remember that you will never abandon the world that you love and that you made. And that just as you renewed and brought back to life Jesus' body, so you will do for all of creation. Anchor us, tether us to this hope so that we won't be prone to despair or depression. And even so, as we wait, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we trust you. We love you. Amen. Friends, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you, give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God loves you. We'll see you around.